everyone. Welcome to season two of the School Stories podcast. I'm Stephanie, your host. School Stories started as a podcast about creative people and their relationships with school. Last season, I talked to 10 creative leaders about how school did or did not support their creative growth. If you haven't listened to those episodes, go catch up. We've got poets, graphic designers, education leaders, entrepreneurs, and so much more. Truly representing the diversity of creative leadership across disciplines. Each guest shares their story and insights about the power of school to unleash the creative potential in every child. This season, I'm holding conversations with what I call creative educators. People who are doing innovative work in education, challenging traditional ideas about teaching and learning, or taking risks to disrupt the status quo. These may be parents, teachers, after-school program providers, school leaders, really anyone who's questioning the way things are or have been for the benefit of kids. Our first episode of season two features Abigail Cram. Abigail has spent the past 14 years working for architecture and design firms on education projects spanning PK-12 to higher education for both public and private schools. Abigail is passionate about designing flexible and enlivening spaces for 21st century teaching and learning. She designs to encourage critical thinking, creativity, collaboration, and communication. It's pretty obvious why she was the perfect guest for this podcast. It's really about creating a sense of, I'm going to call it authentic belonging. Yeah. Um, So that students feel supported, that they have a sense of choice, um, and that their desire or even their embedded desire to learn is allowed to be celebrated. Mm. I like to start most podcasts just by asking my guests to introduce themselves because I find that they are much more expert in who they are than I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you can just introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them who you are, what you do, and you can share both what you do professionally and recreationally. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I'm Abigail Cram, and I like to call myself a New England expat. Um, my <laughs> husband and I landed in Texas and San Antonio about four years ago. And um, I used to be extremely outdoorsy and have all kinds of activities. And then I became a mom and was working full time. And so now um, my hats are working and momming. (laughs) But um, in there, I've started to kind of create a way to do those hobbies that I used to have with my kids now that they're, um, I don't know, you figure out a way to make it all work. So I start... I love to cook, and so now I've started cooking with my six-year-old, and I sew and start sewing with him and reading and connecting with nature, and you find a way as a parent to kind of blend these things that make you you um, into your parent identity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And I I also feel like they become, well, in my my fantasy world, because I haven't had kids yet, but what I imagine it's like is that it becomes more meaningful and special when it's shared. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And actually, I recently was in Houston for work on Friday, and I had the opportunity to spend the night and just be by myself for a night. And I found myself thinking, oh, gosh, I I mean, this is lovely. And I'm able to sleep through the night and uh, get 10 hours of sleep that I haven't had in a long time. But on the flip side, I really want to be sharing my first experience um, exploring Houston with my kids. Yeah. It's very true. 
That's awesome. Will you say more about the working side? What do you do for work? Yes. (laughs) Um, So I'm a designer uh, in the field of architecture, and I have went to grad school probably... um, People would say late in the game, uh, I was about 30 when I went to grad school for architecture. I knew as a child that I wanted to do architecture, but oddly was kind of steered away from it and had a lot of other things. I, as you come to know, I'm, I have a lot of passions and interests, so I sort of let some other things um, trump architecture for a while. But around 30, decided to go back to grad school, got my master's in architecture, and have been working in firms designing architecture and place for about 14 years now. Wow. Specifically um, in the field of education. What finally got you to pursue architecture as a career if it was something that you had had interest Mm -hmm. in early on but weren't ready to dive into? Yeah, actually, I I have a distinct moment. Um, So I had my aha moment was there is an architect uh, who's since passed away named Samuel Mockaby. And he was in Auburn in the South. And he designed spaces for the rural poor, basically, um, using a lot of times using alternative materials. Um, he was um, somebody that dedicated his life to creating spaces for people that otherwise wouldn't have them, um, whether it was housing or a community gathering mm-hmm. space. And I distinctly remember reading, um, I think it was actually an, a blog, a piece on NPR about him. And I said, this this is what I'm meant to do. This is, um, now I come by it rightly, both my grandfathers were architects. Oh, okay. So it's in my DNA. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'd been doing a lot of different things that were creative, you know, some graphic design and marketing and sales that are actually a lot of what goes into architecture. But um, it really wasn't until I came across him that I knew that there was some sort of purpose that I had to make somebody's world better mm. through the lens of design. Mm-hmm. So Was it scary at that, I mean, thirty is not old, but it's not like young either. Yeah, um, was yeah. it scary to to take that leap? Um, you know, I, I've always been a risk taker by nature, but um, I I sort of cheated in that I took a pause from my job at the time, and they actually were willing to let me do it. Um, and I attended Harvard has a what they call a career discovery program for oh, cool. architecture and people mm-hmm. that are thinking of doing career changes, like myself. Um, and so I got into that and did it the summer um, before I kind of knew I wanted to apply. So that gave me a chance to really decide if I had the kit of parts that are needed to really, you know, if mm-hmm. I could really do it. Yeah. Um, if I had the skill set. And also, I, another aha moment was when I when I had my first studio there. I said, "Oh my God, I have completely found my people." Because as designers, you really you see the world very differently. Um, and it sounds kind of cliche, but you do. We see things that, uh, we see it three-dimensionally and we respond to things in a different way than other people. And so so being with people that experience the world the way I do for the first time was really monumental. Um, yeah. So it made that jump not as scary because I was just so excited to, to dive, dive into it all. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, okay, I want to hear... I want to hear about at what point in your architecture journey did you start to um, did you did your work start to inter- intersect with education, or when did your mm-hmm. interest in architecture meld with your interest in education, and how did that happen? Yeah, you know, I often um, speak to this. You can't talk to it without going back to my family. Um, and my mom was a teacher. She was a kindergarten teacher since as long as I can remember. <laughs> And has a she has a gift 
um, with children. Mm-hmm. And it was so much a part of her identity, still is, that it very much became a part of our lives as a family. And my father actually is just has this like insatiable desire to learn and in his 70s decided to get his PhD. I mean, wow. so it was kind of the combination, I think, of being in that environment that's sort of always seeking more and also my mom's sort of gift for children and love and passion for children. The world definitely is in me, um, but I've really come to realize that the way that I'm supposed to celebrate that and explore that is by designing spaces for teaching. Yeah. I really, really enjoy that. Um, I've started doing um, a STEM class here locally in San Antonio through Southwest um, College of Art. I always get that wrong. Um, School of Art. Yeah. <laughs> and um, in Maverick and um, JG Brack for sort of uh, socioeconomically challenged students. Um, and that's been incredibly rewarding. So I, I realize actually now that I do enjoy teaching, but um, it's kind of that combination of designing and teaching that's this beautiful synergy that I found. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's I think it's important just to recognize that there are lots of ways to be involved in the education landscape mm-hmm. outside of just teaching and lots of ways to make an impact on students' learning experiences outside of just instruction. Mm -hmm. And I think design and the way that we design spaces is a really big one. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you you talk more about... um, Were you you doing... Were you designing schools from the get-go when you got into architecture? Like, at what point did you start using your skill Mm -hmm. for design in the education space? Yeah, um, so the way design school works, at least the type of school I went to, is very much about kind of breaking you down and building you back up as a creative thinker Mm. and strategist. So I came out of grad school not really having a distinct focus, just a real energy, I think. And that quickly, that energy really found a happy place designing for education because um, education spaces, they need to have an energy and a pulse. And so it just was really celebrated and matched well with my personality. Um, and But I did start right out of the gate. I started um, working on a new school of education, actually, for University of Denver. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth yeah. um, on education projects. And it was a huge 85,000 square foot, $24 million project. It was Whoa. lead gold. It was a big dog. And um, so that's where I cut my teeth. We went to Denver. Every, I was living in New Mexico at the time, working for a firm there that um, was a satellite office for Philly. And they and we went there every single week for like nine months. It was grueling, but it was amazing. And I learned a ton. I, I also attribute a lot of what I've, um, the knowledge that I've gained and sort of the complement to my passion has been in my mentors had incredible mentors. Yeah. And it's made a really big difference. Yeah. I don't, I always had as a teacher sort of an inherent understanding that the way I set up my space impacted the way that my kids learned. And so I was always experimenting and moving tables and reinventing my classroom space. But when you go into a school and meet with a, I imagine, leadership team, is that what it looks like? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you explain the connection between space and students' learning experiences? I've sort of refined the way I think about this um, more and more, but I think, especially coming out of some of the recent projects I've done, it's really about creating a sense of, I'm going to call it authentic belonging, Yeah. Um, so that students feel supported 
that they have a sense of choice um, and that their desire or even their embedded desire to learn is allowed to be celebrated. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things you can do, and I think people tend to think that they need to be expensive, yeah. and they don't. <laughs> um, I think kids, one of the beautiful things about kids is they really don't pass a lot of judgment. So even if you're in, teaching in a space that's really limited, like, for instance, the space that I taught the STEM class in last fall, it was all CMU block. Yeah. But you can do really simple things to creatively change the surfaces and you know, getting soft seating, those things go a long way. Yeah. You know, just beanbag chairs yeah. go a long way. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things that's been very cool to see sort of for me as a designer is watching how the evolution has kind of morphed to tie the business world and the academic world into one and those lines kind of blur. And so that basically a lot of like, even down to pre-K through 12, those spaces are starting to look a lot like the spaces that people are graduating and going to work in. So there's this kind yeah. of linear thread that runs throughout their lives of kind yeah. of common commonalities that they'll find in the spaces that they mm-hmm. inhabit. Do you, um, do you have a favorite project that you worked on? I guess it's probably an unfair question. <laughs> I have a Maybe couple. Maybe you don't have to I, say. I, I have two. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a lot. All of them have sort of... Um, been incredible experiences for different reasons. But one is um, I worked on a community college campus in New Hampshire, and it's only a two-building campus when we started, and we were doing a 30,000-square-foot addition. So it's like two stories and um, not enormous addition, but the impact that it was going to have on the campus was going to be monumental. Oh, and yeah. when we went for our walkthrough before we even submitted our proposal to try and win the project, um, one of the things that immediately struck me was that students were eating lunch in their cars because there was oh. nowhere for them to, there was no touchdown space. They had classrooms, yeah. offices, uh, and various labs, but that was it. There were no sticky spaces is what we call them in the design world um, that they could just touch down and curl up in a corner and with their laptop or work in a group or whatever it might yeah. be. And so their program for the addition didn't even have any any of those spaces allocated, and no t- breakout spaces, all of the kind of things you see in 21st century classrooms. They didn't have any of that in the program. And so what we did was we kind of really turned the program on its head and shook it out, if you will, and to find those spaces. And so we created them. And I remember um, we actually adopted our son just at the tail end of that project, so I didn't get to see the total, the end of it being built. Mm. But I went back and walked through with the president of the school and I could see students inhabiting those spaces. Like we yeah. made this incredible lounge. It was on the second story and looked out over the trees into the mountains beyond. And it was a space that we kind of found and designed for those moments of these kids sitting there, you know, just studying or whatever, but they're not in their cars anymore. Yeah. Uh, it was a really, it was a very moving experience for me to see um, something that I'd been working on for so long and we'd had this desire to create this space for students and we, we did it. You know, yeah. Um, the other is one that I've just finished, and it's called the Episcopal School of Dallas. The lower school just moved on to the main campus, so now all the the lower school, middle school, and upper school are now all on the primary campus in Dallas. And that one, to me, uh, it has a special place in my heart. I think partly because um, 
the timing of starting the project and finishing the project were at the exact same time I became a mom to our second child. And so I really, we joke that I had two children that I was rearing for the past (laughs) two years, but it's kind of true. Um, And the client was incredible um, and they were so receptive to thinking out of the box and kind of challenging the, the traditional norms for teaching and learning. So we had the opportunity to design a space that was very innovative and really kind of celebrated everything that is 21st century learning and um, create nooks and crannies and bring outdoor spaces up to the the top two, second mm-hmm. and third floors. And we recently went for the ribbon cutting, uh, the grand opening. And there was a teacher who we were walking through and looking at the spaces and a teacher stopped us and said, I just want you to know that you really nailed it. Oh, and that's everything. And she said, I was planning on quitting my job wow. as a teacher. I was burnt out. I, they weren't, I just didn't feel like the space was responding to what I wanted to do. I came back this year, and I literally stood in my classroom with tears in my eyes because yeah. I really felt like you all listened and you got it. And, yeah. and you can feel it when you go in the space. Like the whole time the building was under construction, you could just almost hear kids. Like I could always sort of hear kids in my head in these spaces and was so excited to see them like writing on the writable surfaces and the glass yeah. and all these things. And then I went back for the ribbon cutting and it, 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 ha- it was happening like right before my eyes. So all of the spaces yeah. that were meant to create these special moments were being utilized in the exact same way that we had intended them to be. So wow. That's super special. It was very cool. Yeah. I feel I, there's something about um, walking into an, a, a school that has, really intentional design that's aligned to like a very mm-hmm. clear about val- a set of values that doesn't just allow for like learning to happen in different ways but also just like elevates the feeling of learning mm-hmm. and like elevates the feeling of going to school and makes school feel different than how mm-hmm. it feels when you walk into a room with a plain chalkboard and desk looking forward that is really special and um I've seen that at a couple of campuses in San Antonio and it's just like the instant you walk through that door, you're like, the kids feel differently, the teachers feel differently, the administrators feel differently, the person working at the front desk feels differently, Mm -hmm. and it just changes the culture of the school in such meaningful ways. Um, Can you talk about kind of the design process with schools and Mm -hmm. what that looks like and then, and maybe like some of the challenges that come up? Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, so it's, it's always different, um, depending on, you know, the school size and also, um, whether it's private or public, they just have different, um, Mm. guidelines. But in every single instance, I think one of the most important things is that you have to show up, um, as a designer early Mm. and you have to listen, listen like you've never listened before and ask, ask the questions that nobody else wants to ask. And so one of the things that it's a couple of sets of tools that I've really found incredibly useful are surveys. We, mm. I've been doing a lot of online surveys before I meet with user groups um, because people like to be able to, they like to be heard, but they also like to be heard anonymously. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things that you, I like going into meetings, kind of knowing what I'm getting into and knowing what questions to ask because mm-hmm. they're so much more efficient because I might have one crack at meeting with, you know, the middle school teachers and right. that might be it for yeah. the entire project. So for me, it's um, this, the front end where you're doing the, the visioning workshops and um, the design thinking sessions of kind of testing and mm-hmm. ideating about different ideas um, for what, you know, what does 21st century mean, classrooms mean to you? 
all of those questions and applying a real rigor to it in the beginning is very, very important. Um, so that's, to me, that's the crux of the design process. And the rest is kind of, um, you know, getting into the design and making sure that taking what you've heard and applying it into three-dimensional space. And that mm-hmm. goes into everything from this physical space to the finishes and the furniture. It's all one. Um, yeah. And, it, and, and one of the th- reasons I think the Episcopal School is, is so successful is that all of those things speak to one another, and so the project really sings. Yeah. Um, in reading a little bit about the Episcopal School of Dallas, um, I saw that you... you, you created neighborhoods yes um and uh that that decision was based on a user need or Mm -hmm. um that came up earlier in the design process can you talk about that choice and then also I had never heard about the ability to reset but to reset yeah yeah so that's yeah there are a couple things um so the neighborhoods they're kind of typical models for how you design schools specifically pk through 12 schools and neighborhoods is one that's um it's talked about a lot but it's not often done yeah and it was implemented in in the episcopal school to just try and really change the way they were teaching and learning and also create um kind of a cross-pollination with the faculty that they didn't currently have that you know a lot of times these schools have these really long corridors and you could never see the teacher that's at the other end of the hall so now there's a collegiality among the faculty because there are four or five of them clustered in each neighborhood, and mm. they can really work together and do innovative things that they haven't been able, you know, flipping the classrooms or whatever it might be yeah. that they weren't able to do. And then each neighborhood has a multi-purpose space um, within it, and so that space is kind of a whole, takes it to a whole other level. So there are all these shared resources that happen because of the neighborhoods mm-hmm. and, and changing the way that they're teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reset, um, a lot of the things that we did and the way we designed the neighborhoods, they speak to the D school at Stanford. Yeah. And reset is that we got that from the D school. So at the D school, you arrive, and in each room, there's a placard on the wall that says, Okay, this is how the furniture should be left when you leave this place. Oh, okay. But do with it, do with it whatever you want. Create your space, design your own space mm. while you're here. And but this, when you reset, it goes back to this. Oh, so it's very cool, and that's kind yeah. of the idea, and that's very innovative and very much with 21st century learning is the idea of choice and and students designing their space and teacher creating their space and moving around and nothing is tight nothing is anchored to the floor yeah. or too heavy to move everything is movable yeah i find that the term 21st century learning means something different to everyone <laughs> yeah it's kind of becoming like sustainability yeah <laughs> do you work on defining that term with the schools that you work with on their terms or do you come in with like some key principles that you yeah know you want to make part of the design or how like what does 21st yeah. century mean to you and how do you create common language around it with your clients I, I think there there's two there's two sort of um strategies to it there's one is a, the basic kind of principles of you know technology and having zones and surfaces that are writable there's mm-hmm. you know flexibility there, those are all kind of the the givens um but i think and creating spaces for the four c's you know um collaboration, creativity, communication, and critical thinking. like that, They need to be speaking to those things. Um, but I think more than anything, the, 
the space really needs to be um, user-friendly um, and have a sense of softness and playfulness yeah. to it um, because that's what children really students really respond to. They want mm-hmm. that playfulness. They want that energy. They don't want static spaces. Yeah. Um, so I think there's kind of the the cultural aspect of it and also sort of the warm, fuzzy aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about sort of the way that design thinking, I mean, I don't, I'm not definitely, certainly not an expert on the history of design mm-hmm. thinking, but I know it didn't start as an educational um, principle. Yeah. Um, and so can you talk about kind of the, natu- uh, the natural synergy between design thinking as a design process versus as like an educational approach? Mm-hmm. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, okay. it does. So uh, to be honest, you know, I didn't even realize that I was doing design thinking as a designer. I didn't even realize that's what I was doing every day. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's all we do is we just ideate. We test and test and test and refine and refine and refine. Yeah. Um, and that's basically the design process is yeah. design thinking. Um, where I found the magic and kind of the secret sauce was discovering that there was a synergy between architecture and education mm-hmm. in design thinking. Mm-hmm. And um, when I went out to California with a client, actually, and, and toured some schools to see how design thinking was being applied to their bases, I really came to understand that it is all of these things, these principles of 21st century classrooms allow for design thinking to happen in the way that they're teaching. Yeah. So they can do project-based learning and do these different things like the active classrooms and ID8 and um, do small small group, large groups, um, kind of formal, informal learning. All those things Mm -hmm. are allowed to happen, um, and therefore they can use the skill set that's tied to design thinking. Yeah. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it totally does. I, the, the language of design thinking didn't, didn't enter my world until after I'd left the classroom. Mm -hmm. But I remember my passion for teaching always came from a place of design. Like what I love so much about teaching is designing learning experiences for kids and Mm -hmm. then like being able to test them, see them fail, iterate, improve Mm -hmm. them, personalize them for the kids in the room. And so it, it became, it, in learning about design thinking, I had, I remember a light bulb going off for me and being like, oh, teaching is in itself a form of design thinking because mm-hmm. it is designing with, well, it's human centered design, except for that it's student centered design. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so it seems so clear to me that that process has a place in schools and in classrooms, both in designing the space, but also in designing the experience for kids. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I really, sort of the principles of design thinking that I really love is that it's okay to fail. Yeah. It's the scary, that's the scary place, and that's where you really learn and grow. Yeah. And I think that's one of the hardest things to learn as a human, honestly, is that there is really no failure. You know, you there are opportunities embedded there. Um, And I've seen that a lot when I started teaching the STEM class, that kids... They come together. It's interesting because it's a group of kids just pulled from different classrooms that are just have shown potential or whatever it might be. They're put together for three hours once a week. They don't all know each other. They didn't know each other mm-hmm. at the beginning of the semester. And they come together and work in small groups. And in the, in a matter of minutes, you give them the project, and in no time at all, they're working together, and it's like these little chattering of birds. And mm-hmm. the next thing you know, they've built a tower out of 
purple construction paper just kind of <laughs> it just kind of happens. Yeah. And it's amazing. And I think if you were to put adults in the same situation, I don't know that you get their same result. Yeah. So it's things like that that really make me it kind of completes the loop for me. Mm-hmm. I really love seeing how children learn in this sort of unfiltered way. Yeah. Um it's very refreshing. Yeah, for me. absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think part of what can be challenging for teachers is that we come we come at project-based learning or creative problem solving with our adult socialization. Right. Your <laughs> and so adult we're like, hat on. We're like, why aren't they planning? Why aren't they making, you know, mm-hmm. why aren't they strategizing? Why are they just diving right in? And sometimes we want to impose our own processes on. Um, I find myself doing that often. And you have to be super self-aware and like super cognizant of when your own fear of failure gets in the way of students failing productively. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think also our education system doesn't necessarily um, support that. Support it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Cool. So can you talk about... Maybe some of the core your core beliefs about kids and about the way the kids learn and how um, and maybe we've already hit on this. Mm-hmm. Um, um, maybe just talk about that. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I think there's a lot of things about the way kids learn that I sort of see in how I parent mm-hmm. um, and how I kind of approach the world. And I think empathy is a huge part of it. I didn't really know that until I became a parent, and that realize that the way that I design is kind of from a perspective of kind of compassion and empathy and trying to see whatever the space is that I'm been charged with trying to design from their lens. Um, and it's the same with a parent. You have to really take a step back sometime, yeah. sometimes and remember, okay, he is six years old. He is seeing the world <laughs> from the perspective of a six-year-old. Yeah. I need to remember that. He may be able to use these enormous words. Like he, my son said, I can't remember what the other word he said the other night. But anyway, it blew me away. But then I have to remember, wait a minute, he's six years old. So this is yeah. the only way that he's seeing it. So I think empathy and compassion are two things that I hold sort of near and dear. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have with everything that I've designed. And sort of it's given me kind of a sensitivity, I think, yeah. um, to the way that I design that s- s- finds its way into moments. I've never been someone that really thinks of designing is kind of this object in a landscape that I want to leave my mark. You know, it's more about those little subtle moments that happen Mm -hmm. um, that are very magical. Um, So you pick those wisely. um, And that's kind of how, as a designer, those are the things that I kind of hang on to. Yeah, that's really refreshing because I think in the education space, we sometimes are obsessed with outcomes and results mm-hmm. and but the magic of learning and the magic of schooling and when we think about our own memories of school and the, the moments that changed our tra- the trajectories of our own lives it's always those moments mm-hmm. it's never the score on the test um or or you know those more like uh quantitative outcomes um but it, yeah, it's a series of moments. So that's I love that way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Do you get? I don't know if the, it exists in the design world, but are there are there the same pressures um, around like academic outcomes when it comes to design? 
Yeah, that's something that's actually starting to happen more and more. Um, a lot of firms, the one that I'm at as well, is embracing um, post-occupancy results. So, mm. for instance, with the Episcopal School of Dallas, lower school, the intention is to really study and do post-occupancy studies to mm. see, you know, are admissions rates going up? How are, oh, students, wow. how are students doing on that? They do ERBs, which are yeah. the tests they do. And, um, you know, how is student performance and faculty performance and faculty retention? All these things are starting to be studied. Actually, um, there's a firm, uh, Perkins Eastman has just partnered with Drexel University on the East Coast to do post-occupancy studies and research. There is not a lot out there on PK through 12. There's mm-hmm. a lot for higher ed, but yeah. not a lot for PK through 12. So now that's starting to happen more and more and firms are starting to sort of attack it with a vigor and a rigor that mm-hmm. they haven't previously because there's a demand and a need for it. Yeah, in a way that you feel like is healthy and productive. I think it's healthy yeah. and I think it will make for much better spaces. Yeah. I think um, it'll take a little bit of... it'll. It'll help take the guesswork out of some of the things, yeah. but it will never apply sort of a logic the way sort of healthcare design is. Yeah. You have these rules that you have to follow. I think it'll just inform the design more mm-hmm. um, so that we'll be better at designing. I think yeah. you need to constant. it's sort of design thinking, you know, yeah. it's kind of, kind of completing the loop and questioning what we've done and learning from it, yeah. the lessons learned and going forward. Yeah. Um, has, has parenting changed the way that you design? Schools, um, I I think so. I think um, I think it's made me much more aware. Um, I think one of the things that I'm even more aware of than I ever was before is that there's no such thing as sort of the average learner. Yeah, you know, every single child learns differently. I was a very visual learner, mm-hmm. and I was told. I remember in fifth grade, I used to doodle all the time. And it makes sense now that you know what I do. Yeah. But at the time, <laughs> they used to say, Abigail, you need to pay attention. You've got to stop doodling. Oh, you know? totally, yeah. And little did they know, they were basically tying my hands behind my back because how I process is while I'm doodling. Like That's yeah. how I process things that I'm hearing audit- auditory um, if it's not visual. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, I, I really realized that, that you know, now as a parent, I see that with my, especially with my well, two and six-year-old both, that they learn very, very differently. And I think you don't... I mean, I knew that as a kid. I knew I learned differently. But I think when you start to see that and have to navigate how to advocate for your child mm-hmm. that might learn differently, it it resonates in a different way. Yeah. And I think that's definitely trickled down to the way that... I think it's trickled down to the way I design and also the way I work with clients, too, to help them understand yeah. sometimes that everybody learns differently. Because mm-hmm. I think it's... Sometimes there are... Institutions that kind of would want to design for the average, and in, oh, this, in today's world, you can't do that anymore. Mm-mm. You shouldn't be doing it, but you can't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah, and you don't have to. Yeah. Do you come across uh, clients who have trouble imagining what's possible for school spaces because their only exposure to schools mm-hmm. is the traditional hallways, classrooms, desks, that sort of thing? Yeah, and I think uh, they know what they know, right? Yeah. Um, so I worked on a project up in Caribou, Maine, which is literally on the Canadian border, and um, they had passed a bond for a new uh, joint elementary middle school. And we went to schools and, and did these user group meetings with faculty, and these schools hadn't been touched since the 60s. Wow. Nothing. Yeah. And the teachers, what they'd made do with out of nothing literally <laughs> was incredible but it was we really had to kind of you know you joke and 
design school, you get broken down and built back up to yeah. be a thinker. But we really kind of had to break through that to get them to think about what you can actually have. The sky is the limit. Yeah. So it's okay to throw crazy ideas out in these meetings because that's mm-hmm. what we're here to do. We're here to like edit and talk through those yeah. and try and unpack them and understand what the need is really there. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that idea is not so crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think about the the classrooms I taught in and what I thought was possible as far as mm-hmm. manipulating space to change the way students interact with the learning experience. And it was like, the most I had available to me was like shifting around some desks, mm-hmm. moving around some bulletin boards, changing the posters on the wall, that sort of thing. And I managed to do quite a bit with just mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like my space was changing daily. Um, but now I walk into schools that have flexible furniture mm-hmm. and movable walls. And it's just, I had no idea that that was a possibility. possibility. Yeah, like tables on casters, on wheels. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, furniture has done amazing things for schools. Yeah. It really has. And, and actually, oddly, a lot of what we're able to do and accomplish overall as designers ha- is because we're allowed to do it because the furniture really closes the loop mm. um, and makes the spaces really um, brings them to 21st century learning mm-hmm. spaces in a way that um, even three, the built environment can't. Yeah. So, When you think about the kids in the schools that you have designed, what is your hope for them? I think that they'll feel at home um, my biggest fear is always as a designer that a student will never f- won't feel comfortable in the environment mm-hmm. that I've designed. I want them to feel at home there, and, and we often talk about um, designing places for belonging, and, and that I want them to find their happy place there, and yeah. I also want them to love learning as much as I do. Yeah, um, it's it's there should be joy in the journey, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I I hope for. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think one thing that um, I, is something that I've learned about reason, recently is designing to the edges. Mm. And I think it's a really beautiful phrase. It was a research document I was reading, and I think the spaces in between have become to me even more critical than they ever were before. Mm. So whether it's in the exterior, the spaces between buildings, or it's creating um, nooks and crannies out of circulation, whatever it might be, um, but don't don't define to constraints, you know. Yeah, define to what uh, like a limitless condition. Yeah, that reminds me of. I I think this is getting more air time in the education conversation, but just the importance of the learning that happens outside of formal learning environments mm-hmm. and the kinds of conversations that you know we hope kids are having in the hallways or in the lunch space or like you said, in the corridor as they walk from class to class, and that those are as important, impactful, meaningful as the ones that are being facilitated by adults in classroom spaces. Um, And I imagine that you can design spaces to facilitate those sorts of things. I think one of the things you had asked me about was um, sort of what my vision is for the future of education in San Antonio. Yeah, And I think my hope is that there's choice Mm -hmm. and there's access. in the STEM class that I taught last fall, we were looking at um, various precedents in San Antonio of our different types of architecture, and a photo of the botanical gardens, <coughs> winter gardens, came up, and I said, 
oh, how many of you all have been here? And ask them to raise their hands. And I think maybe two or three out of 30 raise their hands. Mm -hmm. And I guess my hope is that that's not the future. Yeah. I want a future where every single kid in that room got a chance to go to the Lego exhibit at the Botanical Gardens Mm -hmm. and see three dimensions. Yeah. You know, see the three dimensional space in the form of the Legos for themselves. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of my hope is that access will be a big part of our future. Oh, totally. And I come up, I come up against that challenge in my work with kids. Um, and have tried my best. So one of the pillars in the eight pillar process that I work with kids mm-hmm. on through Crea is um, inspiration and then imagination. Mm-hmm. So inspiration is finding inspiration in the world around you, and imagine it, imagination is sort of like ideation. It's like mm-hmm. imagining all of the possibilities for your project. And inspiration, I mean, kids can find inspiration in everything. So I give every kid gets an inspiration notebook, and we talk about the ways that. Um, various creatives throughout history have collected inspiration um, and and gotten ex- inspired for different creative works. But there's that access piece becomes so apparent to me during that time. And there's so there's so much I want to do outside the four walls of my classroom to get kids inspired. Um, and and so I, I'm really I personally am very much trying to experiment with how do I. How do I expand kids' like realm of inspiration? Mm-hmm. The things that they that they're able to be inspired by, um, with limited resources. Well, and they can't <laughs> have aspirations, right? Yeah. Unless they have access. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it is sort of having the ability to, to design in um, discovery and creativity, so that they can have aspirations mm-hmm. for their own future. I mm-hmm. think that's a big part of it too. Is yeah, giving them the possibility to think beyond. What just like the teachers, you know, yeah. it's, you know, you don't have to. You are not limited by this, right? You don't know. Think what out you don't of the know. box. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I'm really inspired by your work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it makes me um, think think differently about the way that I use space in my teaching, um, and and the way that I hope I challenge other educators to use space in in their use of the CREA curriculum and the CREA program. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's, I'm honored to be here. <laughs> um, well, we will wrap it up. So we are going to sign off and say bye to you guys now. And I'll see you for episode two of season two. Bye. <laughs>